we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis, we come to the 15th chapter of that book to which I invite your attention with me this morning, to Genesis chapter 15. We have followed our father Abram now for miles and miles, not only of ground, but of faith as well. We've seen our father Abram in his highest, we've seen him at his lowest, but through it all and in it all, what we have seen the most is not so much Abram, but Abram's God. The God of Abram being faithful, calling Abram out of the land of Ur. God watching over him in the wilderness. And Abram, when he built an altar to the Lord in that place of the enemy, we see God caring for him as he turns his eyes and ours as well upon that God of heaven and of earth. We've seen God preserving Abram's life despite his foolishness and sin in Egypt, God protecting Abram's life to spite the wicked kings who took even God's son Lot into captivity. But there are certain highlights along the way, special bursts of revelation. A professor of mine uh, called it in seminary, Dr. Von Groningen would call these covenant revelations bursts of revelation in the Bible. And, and this certainly was to Abram in this passage and to us then and forever. The passage before us is uh, a great and wonderful manifestation of God's faithfulness to his covenant that he makes with Abraham and so with us. And to it we go, but not, first, not until first we've gone to Abram's God and ours in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Abram's God, the God of heaven and earth, covenant-making and keeping God, keep thy covenant, we pray, of love this morning with us, your children, by speaking to us and making thyself known to us, even as you have to our Father, and so recorded here in Scripture for our good and for your glory as well. Send thy Spirit, we pray, mightily to do this work we ask for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 15, we begin at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Weird. That might be our first reaction, our first temptation to say in response to this passage, especially that part about the animals and the smoking fire pot and the torch. This is just plain strange to our sensibilities when we truly picture it in our mind. Think of it now, the, the, the gore, the, the bloody gore of it all, really, it verges on the gross and despicable. A heifer lying, cut in half, blood running out of it, and awful, dangling to the ground. Next to it, a goat in the very same shape, and next in line, a ram cut in bloody two. Birds, probably with their, ring, their necks rung, lie next in line, still whole but lifeless on the ground. It's no wonder that PETA the people for ethical treatment of animals and other groups don't generally gravitate uh, to the Bible, even though Scripture has some of the most important things to say about the rightful treatment and care of all creation, including the animals. But anyway, the whole picture strikes us as sort of bizarre. And then, as if split carcasses in two, and our father Abram shooing vultures away from the carcasses isn't enough, we have this smoking fire pot and torch making their way through the darkness between the pieces. What is this all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's about. It's about you. This is about you. Well, you say to yourself, I don't see myself anywhere in this passage. I've entitled the sermon, God's Covenant with Us. Now all you see is an ancient and even gory ceremony between an ancient patriarch and God. What could this possibly have to do with me? Well, have patience and I will show you. First, though, a word about what's going on here. God has made a covenant with Abram. We saw this beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He's called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's engaged Abram to be the father of all the faithful, the progenitor not only of the Lord himself, 
But of all of us who believe, who are Abram's spiritual children, Paul calls us, spiritually speaking. That covenant he renewed soon afterwards in Genesis 13, repeating his promises to Abram. And he further will expand that covenant come Genesis 17, where he gives that great sign and seal, at least of the epoch before Christ, the sign and seal of the covenant, which is circumcision. For now, though, these halved carcasses and smoking firepot and torch, what does this mean? Well, remember that God is a covenant-making and keeping God. He has made covenant with Abram, and that covenant has been renewed and renewed and renewed and renewed again through the scriptures until finally it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. This is, by the way, as maybe you know, the very organizing principle of the whole of Scripture. Scripture is God's covenant unfolded, revealed more and more. It organizes all of Scripture. This is the skeletal structure. Strip Scripture down to its bare bones, and what you find is this covenant between God and His people. Everything else in the scripture simply fleshes this out, simply develops and applies the covenant. Now, Abram, you remember, has just won a great victory against those four uh, kings. But his faith is still being stretched. We saw that last week. Now, Abram's not doubting God here. He's not questioning God in an accusatory way, not at all. He's not shaking his fist at God and demanding from him that he explain himself in prayer. Instead, what we might say, we find Abram folding his hands in prayer and pleading with the Lord now. Last week it was this, God, how can you reward me since I don't have an heir? An honest enough question, fair enough question. God disposes of it quickly, remember, with a quick walk with Abram out into the crisp night air and a long gaze upon the stars and the assurance that as the stars are, so shall your offspring be. Now, another question. You say to me, O God, you say to me that I'll possess the land, but, verse Eight. Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Another fair enough question. He's not sinning and asking it. He's not rebelling against the Lord here as others have in the scripture would by questioning God, by demanding from God in their questions of this God who is the knower of hearts the discerner of all of our thoughts. He knew that those questions were not simply honest, but actually rebellious and wicked. But here the friend of God asks simply, how may I know this? Now in that time and day, and actually for hundreds and hundreds of years around Abram's time, there was a custom in the ancient Near East, there was a custom in which men would make covenants between each other, promises. We might even call them contracts between each other. One party promising to do thus and the other party promising to do so. Masters would promise 
care to their vassal slaves on the one hand, and then the vassal slaves would reciprocate with promised obedience and subjection to their masters. They would enter a contract, a covenant. We enter contracts all the time, don't we? We talk to the man who's got that used Mustang in the driveway, and then we've got the hot little $1,500 sitting in our chest of drawers at home, ready to buy. And so we contract with him with a handshake, keep, keep the Mustang in the driveway until I get home, get the money, and get back here and buy it. Today, we still make contracts in the form of mortgages. We sign that we promise to pay this mortgage. We enter into a contract and we promise against that mortgage everything, including our oldest child. <clears throat> now, in the case of uh, the latter, these are usually, there are usually penalties written into these contracts. We promise to pay our bill every month or we surrender the family car, we surrender the chest of drawers, we surrender everything unless we don't keep this promise. We promise to fulfill in our contracts at work a certain amount of work, a certain amount of product to our customer, or we will suffer the penalty of not getting any return on our product if we fail to fulfill the job. Well, that's sort of what's taking place here in Genesis 15. It's a contract. We might more properly call it a covenant, as the scripture prefers to do. Only the stakes, you see, in this covenant are much higher than the family car or some financial penalty. The stakes of this covenant are revealed by the way the covenant is sealed. They pass through the halves of dead animals bleeding all over the ground. And what the parties are saying is this. May this happen to me and more if I do not keep my side of the covenant. Now, in a typical covenant, the parties would take turns. One would go through the halves, and then another one would go between the halves, so that both of them were agreeing, promising something, both of them taking upon themselves the penalty of failing to keep this promise. But here, don't miss this. Here, only one passes through the halved animals and the dead birds. Not both, but one. Who is it? Who is it that passes between the animals? It isn't Abram. Never once passes through them, never makes any promises. It's God. It's God who passes through and makes this covenant. Which brings me to the first point. First, in God's covenant with us, God acts unilaterally. That is to say, he acts by himself. He acts alone to make his covenant with us. 
It is not as if God and Abram sort of put their heads together to come up with this idea, let's make a covenant, a promise, then we'll take turns passing between the animals. No, God initiated the covenant. We saw this already back with God drawing Abram out of the land of Ur. Not for anything in Abram, not because Abram was somehow more attractive to God and sort of drew his attention to himself because he was better than the rest. No, solely, only because of God and his mercy and his grace. Then he seek out Abram and take the initiative. And in the same way, God alone continues in this covenant. Now when he cuts this covenant, he has continued faithful to Abram, even in his foolishness and fear of man in Egypt. Now, not as equal partners, but of God's doing and God's alone, he comes to Abram and he reminds him, I am going to give you this land. I am going to give it to you. And here is my promise. And he begins by saying, I remember, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to give you an heir, all the rest of the promises. And here it is God speaking. It is God doing. It is God giving. It is God promising. It is God fulfilling. It is God creating this relationship where none existed before. It is God, it is only God, in the manifestation of the smoking firepot and the torch passing between in that bloody path. And so it remains in the rest of the Bible. All of the rest of the unfolding of this covenant, the promises made to Abram, right down to us, right down to our little ones sitting with us here in this sanctuary, the promise continues the same. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, says Jesus. No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father draws him. What has really changed, Christian, since the days of Abram, I ask you, what has changed? God comes to us the way he came to Abram. God draws us, even gives us faith as a gift, Paul teaches us, so that we may receive his gift of eternal life. We have nothing, we have absolutely nothing that God did not give to us including our salvation. It is all his doing from beginning to end and none of our own. We were, as we sang a few moments ago, fast bound in sin and nature's night. We were in the dungeon of death, not asleep, but dead when God came to us. When the torch filled the place with light. And so we can give ourselves no credit, none, for our salvation. No pat on the back for having come to God. Only God gets the credit for this and the glory. And to him we give all praise and honor, for apart from him, from him we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were lost in utter darkness. We were separated from him by our sin across a gulf that only he could bridge. 
only he could fulfill. Scripture will continue from Abram's life forward to develop that truth over and over and over again in any number of ways. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, like Abram's, is all of God. All of it. It comes to us, it comes to any person. Salvation and eternal life do the way they came to our spiritual father Abram because Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday and today and forever. The one who comes for his sheep, the one who calls them by name, not the other way around. That's the first point. This covenant is a unilateral covenant. It is God acting and God acting alone. But we receive the grace, and he is the giver of it to us, and all these things he gives to us unilaterally. Second, we learn from this whole encounter that God's covenant to us is not only unilateral, it is also, second, personal. Personal. That is to say, it is a personal application of God's grace to us, not the performance of works by us. These things we see in God's covenant with us, not uh, filled with ways that we should make ourselves right with God, but with ways in which God reveals that he makes us, us right with him through a personal covenant with us, a personal relationship with us. Now, how different this is from all of the other religions of the world. Have you ever noticed this? You listen to Islamic writings. You listen to what motivates Islamic terrorists to fulfill their gruesome tasks. Or listen to the Quran at all. Or listen to rabbinic writings or the teaching of any number of religions, including, alas, corrupted Christianity. And what will you hear? Time and time and time again, this is what you will hear. Do this. Be this. Perform this. Fulfill this. And then God will be pleased with you. Then you will earn God's favor. Then you may be sure to enter into paradise. Some form of service, some form of obeisance, something rendered from us to the Lord to gain his favor. Meanwhile, in such religions, God, in whatever form he or she takes, remains in the distance, off on the top of a mountain, largely disinterested and disengaged in the life of man. Else he's so amorphous as to be almost meaningless, as spread out as the tree and the flea and me. Here's the great significance of God's making a covenant with us personally for salvation. It makes our salvation a personal relationship with the Lord, in which relationship he comes and wraps his arms around us, his arms of grace and mercy and love, and says, I covenant with you. 
my child. I make you my child by my love, by my grace. You are mine. A living relationship we have with the Lord, not a set of dead rules and regulations by which to make ourselves right with him, not rules, but a relationship. That's what God gives to us primarily and first of all, because it's the same covenant with us today in Christ Jesus as it was with Abram. For our Lord Christ changes neither yesterday nor today nor forever. And in that covenant, God comes to us and he speaks to us and we speak to him in word and prayer. We hear, even in our worship this morning, has not our worship been just a conversation between us and the divine? Him calling us to prayer, us singing his praises, him calling us to confess, us falling down before him and confessing and opening our hearts to him. His coming back with the healing balm of forgiveness and pardon of our sins back and forth. A divine conversation. We hear him ask us questions, we answer and vice versa. There's promises, there's vows, there's a conversation between the divine and human. In fact, does not the scripture describe all of salvation in this way? Knowing God. Knowing God. Amazing. Absolutely astounding. Which is why it is our church's own theme to know Christ. For that is salvation. And then to make him known, which is salvation for others. That they should come into the same covenant with us, drawn by the grace of God. Think about how wonderful this is and how it makes biblical Christianity different from every other religion in the world. God saves us in relationship with him, in which relationship we find grace and mercy and love, find ourselves preserved and continued and his promises ultimately fulfilled by that grace, by that grace alone. So God's covenant with us is unilateral. God's covenant of grace with us is personal. Third, God's covenant with us is eternal. I said it before, I know, I'll say it again. Jesus Christ, our Lord, let's proclaim it from the mountaintops as the same yesterday and today and forever. So he was with Abram in that dark and fearsome night. So he was with his people at Mount Sinai with the thunder and the cloud and the darkness. And so he was in the darkness and in the earthquake during those horrific and horrifying hours when God moved in the darkness to fulfill his covenant with us at Golgotha, at the place of the skull at the cross. In fact, the rest of the Bible, from Abram's day to John's, from Adam's day to ours, is but the unfolding and the elaborating and the filling out of the same covenant between God and Abram. 
It's all about God's unilateral, his personal, his eternal covenant of salvation, this relationship that God has established with us, his people. Now we say those words, we say God's covenant today, and informed more by movies uh, than by the printed page, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. We think of Mount Sinai, of Moses, and the entrance of the people into the Promised Land. But all of that, too, you see, is but the unfolding of the covenant with Abram. The taking on of flesh and the growing of that covenant with our Father. In fact, God himself makes that very point, doesn't he, in this passage. With all of that language, about 400 years of affliction for Abram's children, the punishment on the nation they serve, verse 14, the possession of the land afterwards. Later on, in Exodus chapter 2, we're told specifically that God was moved to deliver his people out of their bondage in Egypt and their suffering. Why? What was his motive? Exodus 2:24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Sinai is God's covenant with Abram renewed and enlarged. Later, God's covenant with David, the King David, is also but the fulfillment and enlargement of God's covenant with David's father, Abraham. God's covenant with David was simply the means by which God more fully fulfills his promise, already ancient by David's day. And to David, God makes this eternal promise. Always will there be a king. Always will there be an eternal heir to the throne, whom we know today. By what name? Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One. The second 72nd Psalm, written by Solomon about this promised king, this anointed one, we read that the people will be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. What is that but the fulfillment of the promise to Abram? in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it comes to us as little surprise, does it? When around the time of Christmas we sing those songs and read those passages again and remember that those to whom this news was announced of Jesus' coming, to them it was nothing new, nothing unanticipated. Nothing that hadn't been foretold long ago. No radical change of plans. No, they received this as the promise to whom? To their father Abram. Sing Zechariah in his song, the Benedictus. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. What oath? This oath, the oath we've read in Genesis 15, passing between the bloody carcasses, sings Mary in her Magnificat. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What God 
had in view here, way back here in Genesis 15 in an ancient ceremony with an ancient patriarch was nothing less than the winning of the nations of the world to Christ and the gathering of his saints, his children under his wings. And scripture makes it perfectly clear that the saints of old have always understood this, that God's covenant was not merely for a piece of real estate along the Mediterranean, but for a better country, a heavenly country, as the writer of Hebrews has it, that would last forever and ever for eternity. In other words, there is but one covenant in the Bible. And it begins in a certain sense right here back in Genesis 15 with our father Abram and it continues to this day and will forever until we inherit shoulder to shoulder with our father Abram and all of his children on that day and forever the blessings of that promised land, the eternal Sabbath rest. Now, one, one matter needs yet to be said as we prepare to go to the Lord's Supper, and that is this. Our father Abram pled with the Lord, how can I know? How can I be sure of your promise? The smoking fire pot and the torch passing down that bloody path. That was God's answer. It was as much as to say, I promise, says God on oath, I solemnly swear to commit myself as Almighty God to do this. Death itself may be necessary, but the promises of this covenant shall be fulfilled. As if it were not astounding enough that Almighty God should bring upon himself this malediction of death in oath, then what must it be when we look at this table and consider what he has actually done. For Jesus Christ has fulfilled that promise in his own blood and his own body. God has given his blood, his body to us. He has fulfilled his covenant to Abram and to us by undergoing the curses of that covenant for us, his own flesh and blood to pay. What happened on the cross, brothers and sisters, did not happen in a vacuum. What happened on the cross was the continuation and the fulfillment of a promise made to our father Abram with a smoking fire pot and a torch passing between halved carcasses. Just as it was promised in darkness and in awe, so it was fulfilled the same way when a great darkness fell and covered the land 
And our Lord Christ, his own flesh, torn, his own blood pouring out upon the ground, cried out with his very last breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now he offers himself to you, child of Abram. And he says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Take, this is my blood of the covenant shed for many. And drink ye all of it. Amen.